James chapter 4, and uh, we're really kind of starting to look towards our revival meeting. I want to preach this morning a message I've entitled, Diagnosis Revival. You know, really, that is what James is writing to these believers that have been scattered abroad, primarily Jews. That's why he, uh, at the beginning of the book, calls them the 12 tribes scattered abroad. These would be those who are Jews that have trusted Christ as their Savior. Now they're scattered, and he's writing to them. This is probably the first letter that is written in the New Testament chronologically. And uh, so he's writing to them and, uh, and just trying to encourage them along, trying to challenge them in some areas. As we come to chapter 4, really what James is going to say to them, if I could put it in our vernacular, is you've got to live the revived Christian life. You must have an element of revival, and you must have it consistently. And so he's writing to them, and he's diagnosing uh, like a doctor, and he's helping them in these areas. James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Father, I pray that you would help us as we study today, give exactly what we need here in James chapter 4. We love and thank you in advance, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's the brother of Jesus, and James is writing this letter from a position of great authority. He's trying to help these believers, these Christians, to understand what they need in their Christian life. Many of them brand new Christians who uh, have been scattered all around, and uh, many under great persecution for the cause of Christ. And really he's writing them, and as we come to chapter 4, it's almost like walking into the doctor's office. Don't you love that feeling? And you walk in, and the doctor comes, and he sits down. And don't you love when the doctor says, all right, what seems to be the problem? And usually I'm thinking, if you can't tell what the problem is. I mean, you know, I've got my eyes are all running. My nose is running. I'm running a temperature. Uh, I'm coughing. I'm sneezing. I mean, if you can't figure out the problem, we've got problems. And uh, then they ask the question, you ever been to a doctor that says, don't tell me what your problem is? I'll tell you. I remember we were uh, in, uh, we were actually in Leavenworth at the time, and we were getting ready uh, probably just a little bit before we would adopt uh, Liam, and uh, we were trying to figure some things out, and I remember going to Vanessa one day, and I said, you know, I'm just really struggling. I don't know what's happening exactly. Uh, Brother Dave, my pastor, I said, Brother Dave will give me something to do. Something to do. I was the assistant still at the time, and I said, he'll give me something to do, and, and uh, if it's physical, I'll go out and I'll do it, and no problem. I said, but if he gives me something that is sitting at a desk and working or mental of any kind, I, I'll go down and I'll sit at my desk and, and then I'll wake up about an hour later or sometimes two hours later. Or, and I said, I don't understand. I mean, I'm not lacking sleep. I'm not lazy. I've never been lazy. I, uh, I, and, and I mean, I would stay up to all hours of the night if necessary to get those things done uh, still on time. And, and I said, but I don't know what's happening. There's just something wrong and I can't figure it out. And we tried several different things, tried eating certain ways and all this different stuff. And, and we just couldn't figure it out. And she said, you know, there's this naturopathic doctor. And I said, I'm not going to a naturopathic doctor. I mean, all you do when you go into those people uh, is they're just trying to sell you their pills and make money, and I'm not doing it. And so uh, a few weeks later, I'd say something about it, and she'd say, well, you know, there is this naturopath, and I'd say, I'm not going to those people. They're crazy. And so we kept going to all these other people and other doctors, and nobody could figure it out, and they'd try this, and they'd try that, and nothing was working. And finally, I said, you know what? Fine. 
I'll give it a shot. I don't really think it works. I think it's all hooky and weird, uh, and they're like, you know, they're crazy people, but fine, I'll go in there. And we went in, and she had this little machine, and she's got me like holding this one thing, and she's touching stuff on my other hand. She's like, now don't tell me any of your symptoms. Don't tell me anything. And after a little while, she said, okay, so you're probably feeling like this, and this is probably happening, and this is probably going on, and you're probably having this and this. And she just went right down the line, and I thought, wow. That's the first time I ever didn't have to tell them what was wrong with me. They told me what was wrong with me, and that's kind of weird. And uh, so then I really thought there must be something strange going on. And so I said, well, all right, we'll try it. We did some of the different stuff. And, and uh, one of the things, of course, that she told me, and many of you know this now, is that I had some food allergies. And so uh, they told me I couldn't eat wheat or corn. I couldn't drink milk. I couldn't have, uh, you know, anything that looked good or smelled good, basically. And, uh, you know, I thought, there is no way I'm doing this. And so Vanessa said, well, on the way home, let's stop by the store. And uh, we stopped by the health food store. And we went down this aisle and this aisle, and there was nothing I could have even in the health food store for weird people that eat like that. And uh, I can say that now because I'm one of you. And uh, so we went down all these aisles. I said, look, I can't even eat anything. This is impossible. And she said, uh, well, we haven't gotten to your aisle yet. And we turned into the gluten-free aisle. She said, this is your aisle. And we went down there and we found one thing I could have. And I said, this is crazy. I'm not doing it. And she said, what would you like to have tonight? I said, I want to have brownies. And she said, all right, if I make you brownies and they taste good, then will you try it? I said, yeah, if you can make brownies out of that, I'll try it. And uh, so she made brownies. And pretty much, uh, my wife does an incredible job with all this stuff and figuring out how to cook all these different ways and all that stuff. But almost everything, the first time or two, it just you can tell that it's gluten-free, and you can tell it doesn't uh, quite match up to what you're used to, and uh, then she'll kind of work on it, and she'll perfect it over a couple of times, and, and it's really amazing that she's able to do all the things that she is, but usually it takes a couple times, and so it had to be the Lord. The Lord allowed it to be that that first batch of brownies, they were incredible. They tasted like normal brownies, and uh, I said, all right, if I can eat like that, I'll do it. You can tell I haven't stopped eating like that, and uh, so we started that process of learning all those things, and for about three months, I didn't need anything extra. And then one day, we were at Panda Express, and I thought, you know, it can't really be that big of a deal. And uh, so I took one of those little taster testers of a new dish that they had on a uh, pitchfork, on a, uh, a toothpick, and I ate that one little bite, and I started feeling bad. I thought, ah, it's all in my head. And uh, so I got a plate of food, and I started eating it, and I found out real quick it was real. <laughs> You know what I found out? I found out that doctor, when she told me what was wrong with me, number one, she was right. And number two, as long as I stuck to the right cure, as long as I did what I was supposed to do, and I held to that diagnosis, and I followed the instructions, uh, and eventually I got a lot of that stuff back. Now it's just wheat and corn, and I can have all the dairy and different things. And, uh, but as long as I would follow that track and follow with some obedience, then I could feel pretty good. I could function. But when I step outside of that, even if it's by accident, then I end up not functioning very well at all. You know, the same thing really is true in the Christian life. When we take the word of God and we abide by it, we function well. It doesn't mean everything's perfect. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. Uh, it doesn't mean that we never make a mistake. But, but we can function. We can live the Christian life with joy. We can live the Christian life with excitement. We can live the Christian life with a right biblical kind of an energy. Uh, I mean, we can have a life that is enjoyable, a life that is fun, a life that is exciting, living out the Word of God. But have you ever been there where you just step out of that? 
Sometimes you say, ah, I mean, this thing over here, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I'm making a life-altering decision. It's just a little bite of worldliness. And before you know it, you're not functioning very well. And sometimes it's not that we make the choice. Sometimes without realizing it, we step out of the way and we're no longer living according to the word of God, living biblically. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place that, as we would say it, we are in need of revival. What we're in need of is coming back in line with the word of God. Back to the diagnosis, back to the directions, obeying it completely. And really what revival is, as we move through these next few weeks, is revival is just me lining back up with the word of God, right and accurate, and my relationship with God being exactly what it should be being thoroughly, completely right with him. And so as we come to James, James is writing these Christians, and he's going to tell them uh, four different things. First of all, James, like that doctor that uh, I spoke to, is going to tell these believers their symptoms. So he's not going to ask them what's wrong. The first few verses, he's going to tell them what's wrong. He's going to give them their symptoms, and then he's going to give them his diagnosis. Now, with these symptoms, here's what the problem is. Here's what the disease is, so to speak. So he's going to give them the diagnosis. Then number three, and I'm going to give you this morning the symptom and the diagnosis, and I need to move along to get that done. Uh, But I'm going to give you the symptom and the diagnosis. Then you've got to come back tonight to find out the prescription. Don't you like it when your doctor gives you a good prescription? I hate it when they say things like, what you need to do is you need to exercise more. Just give me a pill. Amen? I mean, just something I can swallow. I don't have time to go run down the road and run back. I mean, there's no point in that. I like it when they say, hey, you've got the flu. I don't like having it, but they say, you got the flu. Here's the pill. It's that. I mean, it's a fairly simple fix, all things considered. I don't have to put in hours and hours. I just have to swallow the pill. All right, so he's going to give them a prescription. Here's what you have to do to fix the problem. So here's your symptoms. Here's what the problem is, the diagnosis. Here's the prescription. Here's how you fix it. And then number four, he's going to give them some maintenance. Last time I went to the doctor, they said, now, here's how you fix the problem you're having. And then they went to that last part. And then you need to start doing. And these things will help you maintain a life that is healthy. And James is going to do that at the end of this chapter. He's going to give them some maintenance. Here's how you maintain this walk with God. So let's dive in here, first of all, and examine the symptoms. What are the symptoms that James is going to point out to these believers? We see these in verses 1 through 3. And we see, first of all, verses 1 and 2, he's going to give them uh, and really clarify their spiritual condition. Look at verse number 1. He says, from whence come wars and fightings, among you. The first thing that he's going to say to them is, look, there's fighting among the brethren. Now, anytime there's fighting among the brethren, there's problems in the church. Amen. So he's looking at these believers and he's writing to these believers that are scattered all abroad. And we could go and we could uh, talk about what some of these battles were and some of these battle lines. And we know that some were uh, perhaps beginning to say, even in this early date of uh, New Testament church history, that they're beginning to say, you know, we ought to just go back to Judaism. Some are saying we can eat anything, and others are saying, well, we can't eat things that have been offered to idols. And some are saying, well, we still need to go to the temple and the the, the, uh, uh, synagogues, and we still need to hold to some of our Jewish traditions. And and, uh, all these things that we've been raised with are really important, all these traditions that we have. And others are saying, no, 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 those traditions have been laid to the side. Now it's all about Christ, and it's a relationship with him. And so there's all kinds of different battle lines here in the early New Testament church, and you see them all through the New Testament. 
And certainly among these 12 tribes scattered abroad, these battle lines have been drawn. And there's, uh, there's strife here and there's strife there. And then there's the normal problems that there would be within uh, any church that, uh, you know, maybe so-and-so isn't getting along with so-and-so. And, and uh, that's all multiplied multiple times because of the fact of the persecution that is coming, the pressures that are coming. And when we're under pressure, we tend to respond a little bit differently, uh, sometimes a little more harshly, and uh, feelings begin to get hurt. And you can just kind of imagine all of what might be encompassed in him saying, there's these wars. And these, these rumors of, well, I mean, there's, uh, once come wars, I'm fighting among you. Why is all this stress in there? Why is all of this strain of relationship amongst you? I, I mean, there needs to be unity. You're in Christ, and yet instead you're warring and you're battling and you're frustrated with one another. And there's so much strain in the relationships. And so we see here, first of all, he's going to tell them uh, the first symptom is that there's fighting among the brethren. Whenever there's fighting among the brethren, we need to take notice. And then he tells them the second symptom here of their spiritual condition. He says, uh, middle of verse number one, Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Number one, he tells them there's fighting among the brethren. Number two, he tells them selfishness is ruling and reigning. Now, if you watch this, it's all a progression. So he says, there's a problem amongst you. You're not getting along with one another. You're butting heads. There's these fightings, and, and there's, there's not a unity there. All right, now, what the reason is for that uh, is found in his second question, and he's wisely putting these in question form, but he's bringing them to the place of conviction. So he's saying, look, why are there fighting? And then with these fightings, is it not because you're operating in the flesh? Is it not because of your own desires, your own lusts? The word lust here, it's not just talking about a uh, wrong sexual desire, but it really it's talking about just the desire for what I want. It, it's just, uh, and that could be in that sense, but it could be in any sense. And, and so these people, they're operating by selfishness. And whenever we operate selfishly, there's always problems in the relationship. Amen? By the way, we see that in a husband-wife relationship, don't we? If a husband and a wife, no matter how long they've been married, no matter how good their, uh, their marriage may be, if a husband and a wife begin to operate in selfishness, trying to make sure their own needs and desires are met, it's not too long until the relationship is struggling. So what we have to do is say, I'm not looking in this wedding, in this uh, relationship in my, uh, with my spouse, I'm not looking to make sure my needs are met. No, I'm going to live making sure their needs are met. And all of us that have been married happily for any length of time, uh, we're going to be teenagers this year. We're real excited about that. And uh, we're getting all the way to 13 years. And some of you say, wow, that's a while. Some of you say, man, that's hardly anything at all. But uh, we're coming right up that point. We're excited about that. But you know, if you've been happily married for any length of time at all, you know it's not because you spent the whole time saying, you better meet my needs. No. Because you spend the whole time saying, I'm going to make sure I meet my spouse's needs. I love them. I'm going to care for them. And you know, that's what must happen within the local church. That's what must happen amongst believers. That we're saying, look, we're going to strive to meet the needs of others. I'm not just going to live in selfishness. So James writes to him and he says, number one, there's fighting. Number two, there's selfishness. It's like a marriage where everyone's trying to make sure they get their own uh, things rather than making sure they meet the needs of others. And, and as we come to church, it ought to be a place where we get encouraged. But you know when you get the most encouraged is when you come in and look for, who can I encourage? 
How can I be a blessing? How can I help somebody else along? And you leave saying, wow, I went in to try to be an encouragement and instead I got encouraged. What a blessing. And so we see there's fighting. We see there's selfishness. Then verse number two, notice the next step in the progression. He says, ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. He tells them there's fighting among the brethren. There's selfishness amongst you. Now number three, materialism has developed. Now you're living your whole life trying to get stuff. And you just want more stuff. And you're willing to do anything to get stuff. And you've quit living in the Spirit. This is James writing to these people. Uh, Of course, not people like us. We're just looking at them. Amen? Because none of us ever struggle with selfishness, right? (laughs) Or materialism. Isn't it amazing they struggled with the same thing in the New Testament that we struggle with in our home this week? (laughs) Because they were people and we're people. James writes to him and he says, look, you've got this uh, materialism that has now developed. You've gotten selfish and because of that you've started looking at the things of this world. When you started looking at the things of this world, the things of this world became appealing, and you started trying to figure out, how do I get more of this world's goods? How do I get more of the things that will make me happy temporarily? How do I get the things that will give me some uh, momentary joy? How do I get the things that will fulfill in the now? So James writes to him, and he says, now this materialism's developed. And then he says, verse number two, uh, again, and we've covered some of it, but it says at the very end, you fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. We find here that they're willing to go to any extent to get what's needed. They're willing to kill. By the way, that word kill, it's not primarily, though it would be the, the right word, but it's really not primarily that they're going around putting each other to death physically. Really the idea here is you're saying things that are hurtful, things that are, I don't know if y'all are warm, but I'm getting there, so I'm just going to take a break from that. Um, But uh, they're coming to a place where uh, they're willing to say anything, they're willing to do anything, they're not worried about how it's going to affect somebody else, they're not worried about how they might hurt somebody uh, in their feelings, in the relationships, or relationships are being put to death. Uh, It it really is the idea, this word kill, uh, and and to be willing to say these things, um, it, it carries the idea that they are just very harsh. They're very, uh, they're mean in what they're doing. I mean, they're just willing to go to any extent. And, and so it's not that you just have a bunch of Christians in the New Testament running around shooting each other. I mean, that's not the whole idea. I know they didn't have guns, but that's not the whole idea. The idea is that these are people that they're willing to say whatever. Uh, they're willing to hurt somebody if necessary. They're willing to kill them in the uh, emotional type of a sense, in the spirit. I, I mean, they're willing to just, uh, to just do whatever to get what they want. They've become so selfish, so self-centered, so inwardly focused. They're willing to go to any extent. And then it tells us at the end of the verse that they have not because they ask not. Why? Because they've become so selfish and so focused on what they want and they're doing anything to get it. They're not in a place that they're praying and asking God for their needs. They're now in a place where they're saying, in my flesh, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to get what I want. By the way, if we're not careful, we can all get there real easy. And it doesn't take months. Sometimes it takes minutes. Sometimes in a matter of moments, we can move from a place where, as far as we know, we're walking with God, and all of a sudden, we see something. All of a sudden, uh, we desire something. 
All of a sudden, a harsh word comes out of our mouth. All of a sudden, we're willing to do whatever to get that thing or to have that moment of quote-unquote happiness. We're willing to do whatever to get it. And we have to be constantly on guard because it's so natural, it's so easy to end up in this place. So James writes to him and he says, look, let me give you the symptoms of your spiritual condition. There's fighting among you. There's selfishness among you. Materialism has developed. You're willing to, uh, to go to any extent to get what you want, and you're not praying about it at all. You're doing it in the flesh. So five different symptoms that he gives them of their spiritual condition. And then he's going to tell them in verse number three that there is a sacrifice uh, cure. In other words, they could have had all this fixed, but they won't take it. They won't do it. He says, ye ask and receive not. Because he asked amiss. Their prayers were not answered because they're praying now. Uh, so look at the context here. He's saying, look, you're doing all these things. You're getting what you want. You're willing to go to any extent to get it. It's all about me and my wants and my desires. So now even when you do pray, you're not praying to figure out what God's will is. You're praying about all these things that you want. Because James understands there's going to be somebody that's going to say, no, I've been trying to get this stuff and I couldn't get it and I prayed and God didn't give it to me either. You said that if I prayed and asked, I would have it. The only reason is I haven't, but I did ask. So he says, no, 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 hold on. But when you came and asked, it was still you in the flesh asking for what your flesh wanted. You're not praying in accordance with the will of God. So James really kind of levels this thing pretty quick. He, he brings this thought that might come back. Uh, fairly quickly, he attacks it. He says, your uh, prayers are not answered because they're for your will rather than God's will. They've become now so self-consumed that they don't even know how to pray anymore. Look at the end of verse number three, that you may consume it upon your lust. They're self-consumed. It's all about them. Man, this is, uh, James is writing to him, and he's writing to people that are scattered abroad and under persecution, and yet he brings down the hammer pretty good in chapter 4, amen? I mean, he writes to him and says, look, you've got some problems. You've got some symptoms that have popped up, and, and there's some problems here that you need to take note of. So now, what's the diagnosis? The diagnosis is that they need revival, but he's going to break it down a little beyond that. He's going to give them the diagnosis of what's going on in their lives. Verse number 4, he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. That's a good way to find friends, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we just had uh, preachers today that just preach like James? <laughs> a lot of people couldn't handle preaching like James, amen? I mean, he comes in pretty strong. Is he adulterers and adulteresses? Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? So here he comes, these, these words, adulterers, adulteresses. Of course, he's not speaking primarily again about the physical, but the spiritual. You've gone away to worshiping other things. God may not be called Baal. You may not worship him in the way that your fathers did in the Old Testament. But, but you're worshiping stuff. You're worshiping your desires. You're, you're giving uh, assent. You're giving uh, value to the things that are about what you want. And that means that's become your God. And you've removed God from his rightful place on the throne of your life, at the pinnacle of your mind, the place where he is esteemed and high and lifted up. And he is the one who uh, receives all your praise and all your glory. And where your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is that which you are uh, seeking and pursuing after all the time, every moment of every day. And you've missed it. You've gone from the place where you're seeking after Christ 
to where you're seeking after stuff and you're unfulfilled because you're doing the wrong things, you're seeking the wrong stuff, your worship has become that of a spiritual adulterer and adulteress. It's about what makes me happy now rather than what draws me the closest to Christ eternally. And so he writes to them pretty strongly here. And first of all, in verse number four, in his diagnosis, he says that they are unfaithful. And that their unfaithfulness is appalling to God. He sees it as one who has totally walked away from him, who's totally unfaithful to him, who has totally gone their own direction and is doing their own thing. And and so he sees them in this manner. He he pictures them in this manner. We're, of course, caused to think of Amos 3.3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? In other words, he's saying to him, look, uh, you're, you're no longer in the place you're walking with God because you're seeking after whatever you want, what makes you happy the things of this world you're not seeking after his glory and his praise and his honor and his worship so you really you're not even walking with him anymore we have a tendency sometimes at least if you're like me to think well i'm walking with god i just like some of these other things too now we can like other things amen but sometimes it's easy to well i mean i i love god i want to have a relationship with him but you know i mean Super Bowl Sunday, if the Chiefs are in it. (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't meddle there, should I? We should probably move on to something else. I'm just saying it's real easy sometimes to start justifying. But I have this other thing, and I know he said don't forsake the assembling of yourselves here, but but, I've got this other thing, and and we can watch online now, and, and, and so it's not that big of a deal to really follow that through. But it is. Because we don't gather just for one another. We gather because we're obedient to him. I'm just saying this morning, it's a matter of, and I'm not after anybody who's not here. I don't keep track and keep record. Uh, But I'm just saying this morning that uh, it's a matter of saying, let's walk with him. Let's follow him. Let's uh, draw close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make him the focus of everything in our life. Well, let's keep moving along. Number one, he says they are unfaithful. Number two, he says they're unfaithful and that's appalling. But then he says that their understanding is atrocious. Verse number five, he says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? And so he's going to give them two thoughts here really in this verse. The first one is their responsibility. He says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain? In other words, he's not saying, don't you know what the scripture says? It's their responsibility to know what the scripture says. Just like it's our responsibility, we hold in our hands the word of God this morning. It's our responsibility to dig into this book. It's our responsibility to learn the book. It's our responsibility to walk according to the book. And by the way, if you have the Holy Spirit of God in the King James Bible, you got everything you need to walk with God and to live the Christian life exactly as God wants it lived. Amen? And we don't need anything else. We just need a walk with God. We need the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one who brings it and brings it to life. And we've got to get in the book and we've got to have it come to life. And we've got to say, hey, I'm not just reading for some details, but I'm reading so that I can understand how does it apply to me today? Are you reading it that way? Are you coming to the Word of God with a fresh joy, a fresh excitement, a a fresh newness to it all the time? Uh, His mercies are new every morning, and we've got to get in and dig them out and find them. And, And the reality of it is this. James is writing to these believers. He's not saying, don't you know this? He's saying, look, of course you know this. It's in the Scriptures. It's your job to know the Scriptures. These are Jews. They would know it. 
And you know, he ought to be able to have that same exact thought with us. You're Christians in the New Testament. You hold the completed canon of Scripture in your hands. I mean, you should know it. But do you think it says it in vain? Number one, he gives us our responsibility to know it. But then number two, there's a rebuke in this question. You think God just put that in there for the fun of it? Have you ever known something in the Bible and known you weren't obeying it and still not stopped and turned around and repented? I dare say all of us that have been saved more than a few months have been there. Sometimes we know. But we live like, I know it's there. I know I probably should make an adjustment in that area of life. But I mean, really. It's not like God's going to strike me with lightning out of heaven. We wouldn't say it that way, but that's almost how we function. James is writing and saying, do you really think that that's in vain? Do you think he put anything in the word in vain? Do you think that God just kind of threw some extra words in because he couldn't come up with anything else to say? No, that's not what happened. He wrote this to you. He's warned you of this. The spirit that dwelleth in us, it lusteth to envy. Uh, and, and remember, he's already used, and for the sake of time, we're not going to go back, but he's already used in the first three verses the word envy several times. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the word lust several times. He's used the word envy. He's saying, look, God has warned you about this. And you still let it creep in. You have a responsibility to know the scriptures, but then there's a rebuke when you don't obey them. And so he writes to them and he says, look, your lack of understanding, it's, it, it's, it's just atrocious. I mean, it, it, you're living as though it's not a big deal and, and you don't understand. You understand what the scripture saith, but you don't seem to understand how important it is to God and how, how swiftly that he can bring judgment and justice. Hey, wake up, obey, go forward, and live out the word of God. That's what he's saying to them. And, and, and again, he's putting a lot of this in question form so that they'll receive it right. But this is the idea of what he's saying. And then number three, so he's giving them the diagnosis. Number one, you're unfaithful, and it's appalling. Number two, your understanding is lacking, and it's atrocious. And then he says number three, don't you love how he's just real encouraging here? He says number three, and this is really where we want to uh, park and we'll stop here until tonight. But in verse number six, he says, but he giveth more grace. Isn't it something he says, don't you know that the scripture doesn't say that in vain? But let me remind you of something. God's grace is still on the table. God's grace is still being offered. The grace of God is still available. You can have forgiveness. You just need to understand that it's sin against God when you don't carry out his word. You just need to understand that it is a big deal. You just need to understand what the word of God says and say, okay, I'm not doing it, but if I repent, God's grace is still available. So it's not all negative. It's not all discouragement. He's just bringing them to the place to understand here's where you are, and this is why you need God's grace. But hey, his grace is available. This is good news, amen? And this is a thrilling fact. And so he says, look, number one, the availability of grace. God's grace is greater than your sin. Romans 5, 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might, the grace, uh, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't it amazing? He says, look, uh, as Paul would say later in the book of Romans, look, the grace of God is available and it's greater than your sin. Now that's good news when we get saved, amen? 
But it's still good news when we need to get right as a Christian. It's still just as good when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just. It's amazing it can say that he's just to forgive us our sins. But he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The grace of God is incredible. He writes to these believers and he says, look, you're struggling. There's fightings. You're you're all about self. You've become materialistic. You've gotten self-consumed. You've gotten an inward focus. Not only that, you seem like you think the word of God isn't that big of a deal if you disobey something. I, I mean, there's all these things that you've allowed into your life. You've been unfaithful to the Lord. Your understanding of the word of God isn't what it should be. But God's grace is still available. There's still hope. There's still good news. And in essence, he's going to say to them, won't you receive that grace? He says the grace of God, uh, it's available. We see the availability of grace. But then he's going to tell them the affront to grace. Verse 6, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. As amazing, as powerful, as incredible, as overwhelming as the grace of God truly is, what can stop it? It's one thing, pride. God says, I'm offering my grace. It's greater than all your sin. And yet even as a Christian who understands some of the word of God and who has the knowledge of what's in the book, if we're not careful, we'll step back and say, you know, I'm really kind of enjoying living for me right now. I'm not really interested in your grace. I'll get around to it when I have time, but right now, I'm over here doing my own thing. So James is writing to these these believers scattered abroad under persecution. He says to them, look, you've got some problems. God's grace is available. But if you stand unbending in pride and refuse to repent of your sin, refuse to turn and receive the grace of God, if you refuse to have your heart broken over the sinfulness that has entered, then the reality is there's no hope. Because God will not force his grace. He will only offer his grace and allow you to receive it. Will you come humbly and receive his grace? That's the message James is writing. That's the message that he sends to these people. The affront to grace is pride, but grace is available. Finally, we see the acceptance of grace. I'm glad this morning, and he reveals it here in verse number six, we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be effective enough. We do not have to be sold out enough to receive God's grace. We only have to be humble enough and we can receive the grace of God. Somebody said, you can never be too small for God to use you. But it's real easy to get too big for God to use you. You know, the reality is this morning, it may be that there's an area in one of our lives and we'd say, I've been saved for a long time. I know if I died, I'd go to heaven, no question about it. But you know, there's some things that I know about my own life And we're not really even hitting a specific area today, but many of us could say, I know some things that aren't exactly aligned to the book. I mean, I know me. I know the book enough to know it. Maybe you've allowed some things to just kind of fester. You've allowed some things to live in your life. And this morning, as we draw close to our revival meeting, maybe you just need to say, instead of waiting till we get there, I'm going to start this morning and say, let me just get thoroughly right with God in those areas. 
Maybe this morning you need to come and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and receive that grace, the forgiveness of sin. And say, Lord, I'm not going to stand in pride any longer. I'm going to humble myself. I'll receive your grace. Maybe you're here this morning you'd say, you know, Pastor, you keep saying something about knowing for sure you'll go to heaven when you die. And, and I don't know about that. I don't know if you can know that. Or maybe you'd say, I don't know that. I maybe even know for sure I wouldn't go to heaven when I die. Maybe you'd just say, I don't know for sure what will happen. I don't even know if you can know. And, and maybe that's where you're at this morning. And the reality is that the Bible says you can know. These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. God has written a whole book so you can know that. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, I've never received the grace of God in salvation. I've never received his grace in that sense. But you know, the same exact message holds true. The message for the Christian, how to receive forgiveness of their sin after they've received Christ as their Savior and they've made a mistake, messed up, allowed something that's not right, is the grace of God. But the same thing's true for you today. You might say, but, but what about all the things that I've done? What about my past? You don't know everywhere I've been and everything I've done. And you're right, I don't, but God does. And he's the one who said that his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is much greater than all the sin you could ever accumulate. And maybe you're here this morning and you just need to humble yourself and say, I'm going to be willing to admit I'm a sinner. Realizing Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for my sin. I would be willing to receive him as my savior. I'd be willing to confess I'm a sinner and ask God to forgive me. Because I'd like to come to him just like you're talking about, humbly. I'm not trying to figure it all out on my own. And I would like to receive the grace of God in my heart, in my life. Let's have every head bowed. This is just an invitation time. Every